You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. Today, spoiler alert, we talk with you about Woo-hoo! your new book <laughs> and the seven stages to seeing the sacred within yourself so you can see it in others. But first, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. The, uh, we're on you know, the other side of Thanksgiving and semester is kind of in that tail end and I, I think we're doing okay. So yeah. yeah. What about you? Thanks. How are y'all doing? Good. Yeah. Just like you said, on the on the other side of Thanksgiving, which was uh, a good kind of week there, um, mm-hmm. and now into kind of the full-fledged holiday season, depending on how you, I guess, determine that, but enjoying that and looking yeah. forward, obviously, with the the bit of hesitation that comes with kind of sometimes uh, the the stress of the holidays um, of of all the the things and expectations and and all that, but looking forward to it, and uh, I'm excited to be here today doing this kind of weird intro that's going to blend right into yes. interviewing you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I'm excited to be here with you as well, and yeah, it's so fun to be on the other side of the interview. This I don't know, I know. how this is going to go today, but I'm really excited to get to talk <laughs> with you about this book. So I've prepared some hardball questions that I are going to throw you I, off. <laughs> I know you uh, right before we hit record uh, you said where's the where's the show doc because yes. you know, I shared our shared Google Drive uh, and I created the show doc for this one not in there so that you can see it. So there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, I have I have what I believe will be a good segue question. Okay, sure. Have you ever written a book? It's <laughs> a great question, friend. Thank um, you. Yeah, you can take some time and think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am excited to say that I have and I have one that is coming out. Um, in January. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's called The Soul of the Helper. But other than that, that would be the only book that I've written. Unless you want to count some of those like childhood books that I wrote, you know, Mm. as a kid, which I definitely Mm, had lots of those when I was little. But yeah. But what about you? I have not written a book. (laughs) So there. Uh, Thanks for rubbing it in. Um, No, wait a minute. I'm just kidding. Um, Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we can we can use that as the segue if you want. I don't. We can't. Uh, I can't ask you how you thought the interview went because it hasn't happened yet. So that's right. I, I assume it's gone well. By the time you're listening to this, uh, we can, <laughs> do you have any other intro stuff, or are you good to kind of transition in? No, I think I'm good. No, I'm really. I'm ex- honestly, I'm so happy to be here talking with you, just in general. But but really, I've been really looking forward to this conversation with you about this book because I know it's yeah like we've been we've been chatting back and forth about it for a long time and just knowing you know our our audience who've been listening to these episodes for mm-hmm. however long like I'm just really excited to get to offer up um, a bit about what I've been writing about and working on for the last few years so yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I'm really excited as well. I remember I have a distinct memory of twenty November of 2019. You and I uh, mm. presented at at a conference together in Indianapolis. Yes, that's um, and right. We, uh, during part of that, there was a break, and we walked from the hotel. It was like two three mm-hmm. blocks to a, a local restaurant, and we walked over. We were like winding through all these parking lots and stuff, uh, and mm-hmm. we talked about kind of the overall. Uh, book idea and structure of uh, this book for you and then a thing that I had kind of rolling around in my head that uh, has yet to see the light of day. But I remember that conversation so vividly. And so to from Mm. there to have been part of like hearing you talk about writing it and checking in and all that type of stuff. And then obviously getting to to offer an endorsement has been awesome. So yes. uh, excited to share a lot of this with our listeners and then to uh, instruct them quite em- emphatically to go pre-order this book uh, since Aww. it comes out early next year. So we'll, we'll kind of get into it. I'm excited yeah. to hear what you have to say. 
Well, I'm excited for your questions and nervous, yeah. but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we go. I'll do this. I'll go. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> hey, today we are joined by Dr. Holly Oxhandler. She is an associate professor and the associate dean for research and faculty development at Baylor University's Diana R. Garland School of Social Work. Holly studies the ethical integration of religion and spirituality in mental health treatment, whether and how mental health care providers discuss their clients' religious and spiritual beliefs, and what clients prefer regarding this area of practice. She has previously been a guest on CXMH uh, in episode 31. And then in September 2018, we had a Holly-centric episode titled Introducing Dr. Holly Oxhandler when you came on board as co-host. So Mm -hmm. go check out both of those if you want some background on Holly. And then obviously you've heard her on every episode since September 2018 as as co-host. She's the uh, co-host of CXMH and the author of The Soul of the Helper, Seven Stages to Seeing the Sacred Within Yourself So You Can See It in Others. She lives in Waco, Texas with her husband and their two kids. Holly, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Robert. <laughs> no, I'm so, so excited to be here. Um, still just continuing on from our intro, but yeah, still yeah. so honored and so excited to be here and just grateful to get to talk about this book and to get to talk with you today. Yeah. Anything that uh, wasn't in that bio there that you'd like to share with our listeners? Nope. I think you covered it. And now <laughs> I <laughs> and now I can understand um, our our guests' responses after we read their bios to them. So yeah. no, that was great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about The Soul of the Helper. Uh, obviously, this is a book you've been working on for a long time, but it's based on uh, kind of this this idea, and I'm going to read kind of the basic premise because I think that's important to kind of get the landscape, and I want to hear maybe a little bit of the backstory of how you came to that, right? So in the book, you write this, that the operating thesis is, as helpers, we need to be curiously attentive and open to our dynamic inner landscape, including our spiritual and mental health journeys as we engage in serving others so that we can care for others from a place of sacred groundingness, groundedness. Put another way, we must recognize and heal what's within ourselves in order to truly recognize and heal what's within this world. Tell me about that basic argument, right? Like, how did you get to that? Why do you think that's so important? Uh, all of that. Yeah, yeah, that's... That's a, it's a good question. And I'm, um, I love how you, you jumped right to the, to that thesis. Like, I think that's fantastic. So a lot of the, the backstory behind this, this work, it's tied into both my research that I've been, I've been doing that you talked about earlier in the intro related to this intersection between spirituality and mental health, um, and understanding what it is and how mental health care providers integrate clients' um, faith into their mental health treatment. But it's also tied to my own personal journey and experiences that I've just walked and navigated throughout the course of my life that I, I do talk about quite a bit in this book. So by going through this research and better understanding really the degree to which um, the helper's own inner landscape, as you just mentioned, does impact the work that they do with others, including um, being able to attend to, uh, especially in mental health fields, being able to attend to clients' spiritual and mental health journeys and how they intersect together that really, it really fundamentally shaped me, to be honest, like looking at this research and understanding how important this inner landscape is in the equation of caring for others holistically. We need to be grounded in understanding this intersection, not only so that we can operate from that place of groundedness that you talked about, but to be able to hold that space for others as they are going through their own faith and mental health journeys and the complexities that those involve. And I think we oftentimes lose sight of how complex those journeys are, which Mm. As you mentioned, like really in the beginning of the book, that first part, it really does unpack this complexity when it comes to our spiritual journey, the complexity that's tied to um, our mental health journey. And then 
adding like, you know, just exponentially complex when you consider how these two coexist with one another, which we do have research that shows that they do coexist. Yeah. So yeah, that's, I mean, so I, I'll pause there to see, I don't know if I answered your question completely, but yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that just kind of gives a, a, like a starting place with how the research I think has kind of poured out, but then also, and I should say this too, again, like how the research and, and readers will get this from this book, how it really fundamentally changed me. Um, I mean, doing this research has completely reshifted my understanding of seeing the sacred within ourselves and seeing the yeah. sacred within others. So yeah. So I do, you touched on a lot of stuff there that I'm going to circle back to. See, this is why I need mm-hmm. you. Usually we, we prep some of the show notes together, but that's all right. It's kind of fun prepping it, knowing knowing you. So mm. <laughs> right, I, I'm going to circle back to especially your story and things like that. But I, I am curious because you've talked about some of the research and how that shaped it, right? And at one point you kind of quote yourself in uh, explaining namaste theory, uh, talking about how as helping professionals recognize the sacred within themselves, they appear to be more open to recognizing the sacred within their client. Mm-hmm. So obviously the the title of the book is The Soul of the Helper. And the first two chapters, which I kind of skipped over because I'm assuming a little bit that our listeners already are kind of on board with the idea that our, our, our mental health and our spiritual health are, are kind of intrinsically linked. But I'm curious, you, you make it pretty clear in the beginning of the book that you're writing this book for helpers, mm-hmm. not exclusively mental health clinicians or practitioners, right? So I'm right. curious if you could define helpers. And then given that the the research, that most of your research has to do with mental health uh, professionals, right? Would you say mm-hmm. that this is, this is as applicable to uh, whoever you're defining as helpers as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good question. So you're right. Um, the heartbeat of the research that I've been doing has been looking at mental health care providers as well as healthcare professionals. So um, social workers, counselors, psychologists, uh, nurses, and marriage and family therapists have really been at the root of the work that I've done. But as I have been talking about this research, I've realized that it is relevant for helpers in general. And to your question around who helpers are, honestly, I really think that this is relevant for all of us. I think that this, you know, when I think of helpers, I'm thinking of parents, of mental health care providers, of faith leaders, of partners, of caregivers, of teachers, of um, staff members. And I think about the baristas at the coffee shop down the street. And I think of those working at our local grocery stores and engineers and poets. And I mean, just on and on. I am thinking when I talk about helpers, I'm thinking of those who are serving others in one Mm. way, shape or form. Um, And, and the way that they serve others doesn't have to fit in a neat box or anything, but is really tied to what these individuals feel is theirs to do um, at their deepest core. So that's who I'm talking about when I mention helpers. Yeah, I love that you uh, included baristas. Uh, if if yes. folks listened uh, a couple episodes back, we talked about some of our favorite past jobs, and I think you mentioned barista as one of yours. That's so, right. Um, it, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, okay. So so explain a little bit. You mentioned there's how some of your own story weaves into this, right? And I'll say, uh, reading through the book, knowing you, reading through a couple different versions and things like that of this book and getting to hear so much of your story unpacked, I think is it's done really beautifully um, and in a way that that really highlights and illuminates a lot of what you're talking about in kind of the way that it's shaped out for you, um, which I think is is just so such a special thing for you to to have kind of that vulnerability and that that story aspect as right. well. But can you explain a little bit, um, and we're going to get into the seven stage journey, right? So would you rather, I'll give. I'll let you pick. Being you know friend of the show that you are, would you rather talk a little bit about your story and then transition into kind of the seven stage journey, or do you think it makes more sense to talk about those stages and kind of weave your story throughout as we're talking about them? Um, that's a good question. I I think I could give. I think I could go into the backstory a little bit. Um, okay. And then yeah, I think that's fine. That's good. Okay. Well, then to to the extent. At, of which you are, you feel yeah. comfortable sharing. Obviously, your personal story. Would you would you sure. tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, transparently, it's going to be published and available for anyone to read. So, um, so Fair there enough. is that. Um, but, but I will say that, yeah, just, just as a little bit, a, a, a bit of a picture, um, kind of looking back. As I write in this book, I write not only about my journey into the research that I do and um, the work that I do in social work, but I do write about my personal journey. And just very briefly, that includes um, layers of trauma and rejection um, and abuse that I write about, uh, not in detail, but just surface level, you know, um, that I write about. But there are some painful parts of my past. And I believe that that's true for most of us, if not each of us. We all have a part of who we are that is really difficult and painful and we have to heal from throughout our journey at some point. And so I write in this book about some of those experiences that I had um, when I was younger and how that not in some ways, of course, there's that layer of pain, but also um, because of those experiences, they've really motivated me too to want to serve others and help others um, because I knew and had been familiar with, you know, what it was to experience the type of pain that I experienced, um, in particular from my biological father. And so I write a bit about that. And then I, I do also talk about, you know, as I grew older, I studied psychology for undergrad. Um, I worked in the field for a while with older adults with anxiety and depression, which I know we've, we've talked about earlier on the show mm-hmm. um, in previous episodes. But then I also was exposed to this research looking at the intersection of faith and mental health. And as a kid, I knew that like when I would go to my faith leader and talk with them about what was going on, they had no idea how to talk with me about it. Like they just kind of blank stared at me. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know how to help you with some of the situation that you're describing at your home. And yet at the same time, I'm so grateful that my mom had gotten me into mental health therapy when I was young, around 10-ish. And because of that, those therapists who I'd worked with when I was younger Thankfully, they were able to weave in these layers of my faith and my mental health together, mm. um, and nothing was, you know, off the table for discussion. And so that really helped me in terms of coping with the situations that I navigated as a kid. So that again, it, it motivated me to want to go into this field around mental health. Um, I came across Dr. Pargament's work, and we've had him on the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and his his work really helped me see, like, oh wow, we we really can look at this intersection. And um, and I describe kind of that moment in the book too, when I I fully understood that, and really understood like this is my work to do. Like this is this is what is my calling, my vocation, whatever you want to call it. Like this is the thing that I feel as though I was made to do. And I just fell head over heels in love with this topic and this research. So then yeah. I, 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 you know, I go on about writing about the the research that I've done at this intersection. And you talked about namaste theory briefly a little bit ago. And one of the things that came out of the research is in 2017, I published this um, quantitative grounded theory that was called namaste theory. Um, as I understood this Hindi term namaste, which literally translates to mean um, I bow to you, but more generally translates to mean the sacred in me recognizes the sacred in you or mm. the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. This word really brought to order um, what I was seeing in my data such that as mental health care providers with higher levels or mental health care providers who were more motivated to live out their faith, they tended to be more likely to integrate their client's faith in treatment, in a mental health treatment. Yeah. Um, so that really shifted my research in recognizing this pattern. And it wasn't just in my data, it was in others' data and not just in social work, but in other surrounding disciplines. And that really formed the foundation for those seven stages that I write about in this book. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. And uh, that the namaste theory that you're talking about there, right? I think we we see that, and I would I I know that you're this is why I had you define helpers. You would say that that's that's more widely applicable than just mental health care providers, right? And even thinking Absolutely. about the audience of the show, but I'm thinking about, right, like Schizero's book, like Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, things like that, mm-hmm. right? Like this idea that you can't lead people healthily and as well as you can if if you aren't um, emotionally healthy, right? Like we can do some of that, but being right. emotionally healthy and being in tune with ourselves and our own, as you would say, the kind of the divine within, right? is what mm-hmm. then enables us to really do that work well for others. Which, uh, let me ask you about the this because I know you identify as an Enneagram too, much as myself. And I yes. would guess that a lot of people who identify with the label helpers might yeah. uh, have a similar experience here, right? Where the idea of taking care of yourself really well so that you can take care of others feels yeah. very hard, right? Like, okay, taking care of myself is like not my default position. Actually, I'm quite uncomfortable there. So I would much rather ignore that and primarily take care of others. Mm -hmm. How do you, uh, knowing that that's maybe a similar thing for you, what would you say to people who kind of are are living in that tension of like, ah, I I get what you're saying, but it feels so much worse or harder? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, yeah, I do identify as a with type two on the Enneagram, and I know we've we've talked about Enneagram on the show before. Um, but I also really like Dr. Jerome Libba's approach, where we have all of the numbers within each of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do, I definitely want to nod to that and the fact that, like, yes, Enneagram twos will get quite a bit out of this book, but also I think each of us, um, we have this within us, right? We have this tendency where it it can be really hard for us to um to tend to our own needs. We may have picked up, you know, messages along the way, whether explicit or implicit messages that communicate like that we are not worthy of caring for ourselves, that we are um that it's selfish to take care of ourselves, that it's better to serve others and 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 it is it's good to give to others and to serve and to offer what we can. But if we are not paying very close and careful attention to what is happening in our inner landscape, um, especially at that intersection of faith and mental health, my fear is that we can be drawing on an empty well that just only is, you know, at the point of burnout and exhaustion and, and, and stress and, and we're not able to give to others or my fear is what we're giving to others is from that place of burnout or stress. And so the resentment comes out and the bitterness mm-hmm. comes out and the yeah. frustration and, and we do, we have got to learn how to pay careful attention to our inner space so that we can keep our wells full enough so that we can give to others to the best of our ability and it's so nuanced. Like there's so many layers to that that I, you yeah. know, that I go into. But, but I think one of the best ways that we can get to this place is by recognizing the sacred within ourselves, so that we come to realize and appreciate that we're worth caring for ourselves holistically. Our mind, our body, our spirit, our social networks, like you know, those parts of who we are are worth caring for intending to, to the best of our ability, um, so that we can go out and serve others from that place of abundance and, and fullness. So, yeah, I love that. I do like earlier, I, I texted you earlier that, uh, I had, I had prepped this one and I had mm-hmm. prepped it somewhat casually knowing that you would, you, yeah. would, you would answer very well. And you told me you were going to only answer in a single I know, like one sentences. sentence. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that you did not do that. Um, no, okay, so transitioning, right? There's this seven-stage journey of seeking the sacred. And obviously, I'm going to point heavily towards our, our audience going and getting the book. We're not going to like unpack in depth all seven. Uh, there's, there's no way we could do that aside yeah. from just like reading the book in its entirety. But we can, <laughs> we can go through a couple and have you kind of talk about them in from kind of like what, what they mean. But then – 
also, obviously, I'm curious if you have some kind of practical ways of, of doing that, why they matter for, uh, again, kind of helpers at large. Um, and then, you know, so if you can, I, I didn't have anywhere to finish that sentence. Yeah, but, no, that's um, okay. I guess yeah. before we go into them, do you mind yeah. if I give like the overarching view or summary of them and then we can dive into the individual ones? Or maybe that's yeah. what you were planning on doing anyways. I don't no, that, know, yeah, no, but, that's perfect. Okay, yeah. awesome. Just so that our do you want listeners, me to read them or do you do you want to read them? Oh, I I mean, I just want to give like a, a quick summary just so our listeners kind of understand, you know. So so just to real quick, like circle back to the idea of namaste theory, and I I do want to make sure that I note too um, that when I wrote about namaste theory and as I wrote about it in this book, I very much leaned on a book um, by A. K. Krishna Nambiar who writes about namaste um, and its um, significance within Indian culture, because I didn't want to take this term out of its original context um, and understanding. So I really want to mm. upfront and communicate that, that, that that intentionality around understanding the cultural roots of this word was really important to me. Yeah. So from understanding what Nambiar wrote about with Namaste, these seven stages sort of bubbled up and sort of just kind of organically emerged as I contemplated what I was seeing in, in my data and as I was wrestling with how it was showing up within my life. Um, and so these, in, in particular, as a helper. So these seven stages, basically, in essence, are inviting us to um, wake up to the speed at which we are operating in our everyday lives, um, to then move to a place so that we can then slow down to a, a, a slower pace in general. We then need to be able to create some steadying structures that help us kind of stay in that slower pace so that we can then move to a place of stillness in order to see the sacred within ourselves before we then shift out to see the sacred um, within others as well as we then go out and serve others. So those just, just those seven yeah. stages are speed, slow, steady, still, see, shift, and serve. And that's kind of the overarching narrative of yeah. how these kind of come together. Yeah, I love that. I appreciate the the kind of bird's eye view there of, of how they all connect. Um, I think mm. that's that's fantastic. So as you mentioned right there, the first one being speed. And I know we throughout the the history of the show have touched on slowing down and things like that some tell us yeah. a little bit about speed uh, and maybe is it do you want to group that with slow kind of because sure. those two go together or do you want to do them kind of distinctly yeah, no, we can't group them together. I think that's fine. Um, so speed, as I wrote about speed, um, you know, in each chapter kind of has a bit of an intro story um, that kind of like led me up to this chapter, understanding it. But it really gets at like the heart of the chapter on speed really gets an understanding that you know, we are operating within a culture that is very fast paced. It is very go, go, go. It is inherent within our language. And I think so often we don't even recognize how the degree to which we are pushed to just go, go, go. And when we just keep going at such a hard and fast pace, it's really hard for us then to even notice what's happening. We're just oriented forward and not paying attention to the present moment um, or to, you know, realizations that we may be identifying. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that speed pace, that high speed pace. Some of them are, again, tied to those inherent messages or those implicit messages that we've picked up. Um, some of them are just tied to the surrounding culture and systems that we're operating within. But either way, we're just, we're going really hard and fast. And my fear is that there's a lot of ways in which we're also, we're almost addicted to that high speed pace, especially mm -hmm. as helpers, because when we help and serve and go and do and advocate and heal and on and on at such a fast pace, like moving toward efficiency and productivity as quickly as possible, when we do that, we receive those accolades and those affirmations and we get those dopamine bumps of 
oh, people, they like what I'm doing. I'm helping. This is good. And that kind of keeps us stuck in that high-speed pace. So I write about um, um, the stages of change model, the trans-theoretical model, and the recognition Mm -hmm. that, like, we don't even realize that, like, we're in that pre-contemplation stage where we don't even realize how addictive this high-speed pace of life is. And so, uh, you know, and, and not only are we so addicted to it, but we also may have, you know, latched on to this pace for reasons including running from the things that, you know, the pain in our past, the hurts that we've experienced, the fears that we have, um, those things can keep us, you know, wanting to run and not slow down because when we slow down, um, that's when those fears and those experiences, those memories, they do begin to surface. And those can be really Mm. scary for a lot of reasons. Um, It it could be because we don't feel safe to slow down um, because it wasn't safe to slow down at some point, but it also could just be um, because we just don't know any other way of being in the world. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, so that's kind of a quick overview of speed and, you know, and I write about burnout and secondary trauma um, and experiences, stress, things like that, that really helpers are experiencing. And they're experiencing at higher rates than they have been in years past. Like we have data that show that, you know, workers in general, but also parents, doctors, social workers, like these helpers are experiencing much higher rates of burnout than they have in previous years. And this data was all before even COVID-19. Um, which yeah. we know have just, you know, made these numbers grow even higher. So, yeah. yeah. So I can shift into slow, but I don't know if there's any, yeah. Well, yeah, I think what's interesting, I, I always picture when I'm working with clients, I always have this kind of internal picture of like a bike, right? And the idea of like, if I stop pedaling, I'm going to fall over, yes. right? Which I think yes. gets into the slow and then even even the steady idea of you talked about some steadying structures, right? The idea of like, do I know how to put my feet down or like the kickstand or whatever, right? Like, because right now it feels like if I fall over or if I slow down, I'm just going to fall over and that hurts. So I'll just keep pedaling even if that's exhausting, right? And so um, I I love that, uh, that, that description because it is so... I don't know the the and the trans theoretical model of change that you talked about there the stages of change. I know we talked some about that back on episode sixty one forever ago, um, mm. and I didn't mean to mention earlier that we talked with Dr. Pargaman on episode fifty eight. Um, mm. But <laughs> the so the the idea of pre contemplation being like we don't we don't, we're not even in a space where for for yeah. a lot of us right we haven't even considered what if this looked different that's just kind of how it is. That's just the water we're swimming in. And what's obviously interesting about this kind of moment is there does seem to be a lot of shifts because in the past two years, based on COVID stuff, right, I think it forced our hand a little bit of like, oh, it could look different. Like we all slowed Mm -hmm. down for a little bit there, even though it was in response to obviously like this, this massive tragedy that is ongoing. But the idea that uh, a lot of things aren't just shifting, quote unquote, back to normal, I think is is at least partially because we, for, for a lot of us, went, oh, wait, that doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. We, we've experienced this other way of, of things being. Um, and so, so yeah. tell us a little bit about slow. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Or you can respond no. to that. No, that's good. I mean, I will say that, yes, I do think that for a lot of folks, they did experience a slower pace through the last two years. But I recognize that there are a lot of folks who did not. And if anything, things ramped up a lot higher. Hmm. Um, Like I think about parents who were juggling teaching their kids at home while also trying to keep maintain their jobs, um, working from home. And and even though they may not have been, you know, driving around or being in, in many spaces, there's still this frantic busyness and hurry, hurry, get it all done, you know, multitask, do it efficiently, get as much productivity done. And, and that's just, it's so, it is, it's just, it's around us. So, so yeah, so from this place of speed and recognizing the pace that we're operating, which again, that pre-contemplation, as I write about it, it really is an invitation towards grace for ourselves because there are ways that we just don't fully see how busy and high paced we are. So 
so I think, yeah, so, so from that space of recognizing how fast we're moving, then we move into this place of slowness as we wake up and contemplate um, this pace that we've been operating at, again, especially as helpers who are constantly thinking outside of themselves for others and serving others and doing for others. And I write about some of my experiences related to that, particularly after our son was born and I had for the first time a maternity leave um, because I write about not having one after Callie was born, but when Oliver was born, um, I did. And that woke me up to this pace. Um, so, so yeah, that's a, a little bit about slow, like just high overarching overview. Um, and I walk the reader through a little bit about the process of actually slowing down and how scary that can be, but how important it is overall. And then, as you mentioned, it kind of moves us into this place of steady, right? Where, and I love, I love that, you know, I started this chapter in thinking about, you know, Sir Isaac Newton's um, three laws of motion, which do you remember what those are? Like from, I don't know, from your childhood or high school or? (laughs) From my childhood. You're vastly overestimating uh, how much I paid attention at any point in any school until grad school, but uh, laws of motion, right? Things in motion stay in motion, things at rest Mm -hmm. stay at rest, and a third one. And the third one, that's right. (laughs) So uh, yeah, so uh, an object in motion will stay in motion um, um, until, you know, there's uh, something that a force will act upon it. Force equals mass times acceleration is the second. And then the third is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I write in this section. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I write in this section about how, you know, when we're at this high speed pace, you know, even though it's not just a, like these three laws aren't just applicable to like physical objects, but when we are, our spirit and our soul is in this place of go, 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 it is really hard to slow down. And even when we do slow down, man, we just want to keep going and pushing and because that's how we've always operated. So in the steady chapter, I really walk the reader through these different, um, practices and skills to be able to start building that scaffolding to help get comfortable with a slower pace because we can't just, you know, snap our fingers and slow down and, okay, we we can now exist in this slower pace. But as helpers, we've got to slowly begin to build in these structures and practices to be able to kind of stay in that slower pace, including, you know, tuning in to our mind and our body and our hearts, thinking about how we receive support from others, which is really important. And especially as helpers, because, you know, it's in so many ways. And again, you, you know, this as someone who identifies with type two, it's very easy to be like, oh, I'm happy to help you. But then when Mm. someone wants to offer that help back to us, it is really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so so kind of learning how to receive that support from others, learning how to practice Sabbath and, you know, doing nothing for a <laughs> short window each week. Um, yeah. It's hard. And then yeah. there's a handful of others too that I write in that one. Yeah, yeah. But- so if if I'm because you just mentioned that and it it kind of pointed out to me that I forgot to like really uh, specifically ask about kind of the, the practical you know ideas yeah, for yeah. speed and slowing down. So for speed, maybe listen. Most of us are moving at a pretty fast pace. So uh, okay, we can if we just say okay, I'm kind of on board there. But for those those three, maybe even because that's the first you know almost half ish, yeah. right? Yeah. Someone says. Sure, great. I get it. Slow down. Cool. Uh, how do I? I have kids, and I have a job, and I have this, and I have people are always wanting me on Zoom calls, and I'm getting emails to my phone. Right? Like yes. uh, someone says, yeah. I have a million things. I that would be awesome, but that seems impossible. Right? Yeah. What yeah. would you What would you kind of offer them in terms of noticing the speed, slowing down, and then finding a little bit of stability in that, knowing that slowing down tends to maybe make us a little wobbly. Yeah, gosh, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, this is not. I want to really start by saying, like, the, these stages that I'm talking about and going through, 
These are not, this is not a clean and linear, like step one, do this, step two, do that. Like that's not how this is structured. This is, um, this is a nonlinear, messy journey and it is really, the, the importance is moving through this one day at a time, one moment at a time doing what you can and and it's slow. Like this is not something that, you know, you know, as oriented as we are to speed, this is not something that we can just hurry up and slow down. Um, we can't do that with these this process and this journey. We have to take it one day at a time and just do what we can within each moment. We may discern through that process like, you know, well, yeah, maybe I don't need to be on every single one of those meetings. Maybe I don't. Maybe I've always thought that I've had to, but maybe as I begin to contemplate some of these practices, I start to think, well, maybe I don't have to be on every single one of them. Or um, maybe I can start asking for help with things related to my kids or my loved ones. Um, Maybe I can slowly begin to lean into some of these practices that will help me to begin to wake up to the sacred with Than myself in order to see it. Because really, like Robert, at the root of this is that if we are moving so fast and just running and going nonstop, we are going to miss the sacred within ourselves. And that is the thing that I am most um, nervous about and worried for, for so many of us as we run and go and do and hustle and on and on and on. We're going to miss that divine spark, that image of God within us um, as we keep going at such an unsustainable pace. So mm-hmm. uh, so really thinking to the, the practical piece, it is really going back to taking this one day at a time, one moment at a time, learning the practice of discernment and knowing, is this mine to do or is it not? Or can I ask for help with this or not? Yeah. And maybe I can't, but... Um, but that discernment is just so important throughout this whole process. Yeah. And I think the the kind of day-to-day, moment-to-moment focus that you have there is so important because it might be easy to say, okay, well, I'm, I will all slow down and whatever. And that means I'm going to quit my job and, you know, move to the mountains and uh, yeah, whatever. No, and that's not, sure. Or like, I'm going to take me. a, a two-week vacation, yeah. right? To right. Every, every other week I'm going to the, the, the lake or whatever. Right. And, and for most of us, we say that's not, that's not feasible uh, or right. maybe even desirable depending on which of the, you know, and so, Hey, moment to moment, can I, in the five minutes between meetings, instead of trying to knock out some emails, can I, uh, do some deep breaths or can I walk uh, to the mailbox yes. and back in between yes. like that's in between sessions a lot of times if I notice okay I'm like back to back to back I'm gonna walk to the mailbox and back just because I get five minutes of outside or whatever right like those like right. slowing down and all that like kind of all those things in sus- feasible ways that are also then maybe sustainable as opposed to like do right. one big massive thing that then you'll you can never do again or it's like you know I think that that's yeah. really important. Yeah. Yeah. These practices are not intended to be additional performative hustling strategies. Like that is not what I intend for any of these. <laughs> like those yeah. those subtle little steps that you mentioned are great or, you know, maybe it means, you know, adding like, like hanging up a sign somewhere in your house that just reminds you to, to breathe, to take a deep breath. Um, just learning those little things that will work for you to help you slow down. And I have a ton of them in here um, that I think are really important. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, I know we're, we're getting on and we could obviously talk forever just based on the amount of stuff in the book. And then because we're friends, um, I think, <laughs> I think you have lots of good stuff to say, but so talk to me, maybe we can do still and see kind of together and then shift and serve sure. kind of together if that works. That's so perfect. Yes. Still I love and that. see, uh, tell me, just as kind of a reminder, right? Like, what is what's kind of what does that mean? Why is that kind of important? And then, how might I do that in kind of a day to day, you know, way for for all of our listeners? Yeah, that's good. So, stillness, I would say, was probably one of the hardest chapters for me to write um, because <laughs> stillness is very hard for many of us. Um, the practice of stillness is difficult, and and when whenever I think, especially for helpers, it's like you know, you just, you're like, wait, what do you mean still? There's so much that I have to do. And there are so many people who need my help. Um, mm-hmm. And there's so many things, you know, so that idea of stillness feels like you're, 
you're failing in the things that you are air quote, like supposed to do. Right. Mm, Um, but that stillness is so important. And I, I write in the beginning of that chapter about this experience or this imagery that I had from being out on the lake as a kid and, and realizing that like, it is only when the water is completely still that I can see what's beneath the surface of that water. And Mm, so we have to get to a place where we are in that place of stillness in order to be able to see, um, within both the good and the difficult, but some practices, like some practical things that I write about in terms of that can help us get to this place of stillness um, include centering prayer, which I know we've talked about quite a bit on this show before mm-hmm. yeah. um, and the importance of it. Um, learning the practice of non-judgmental self-observation. Um, the be still prayer. I know it's also hard. It's hard, <laughs> especially as a helper because you're, you know, these are the ways that we're, we're wired, like to just, yeah, to just go, go, go. Um, I write about Lexia Divina and um, learning to, to read our sacred texts in a way that is not just checking it off a to-do list, but learning how to actually, again, be still with the sacred text. And then sobriety is a really important one that I write about as well. And the fact that... Um, you know, I, I circle back quite a bit to Seth Haynes' book in that section um, and the ways in which, you know, sobriety has taught me that when I numb the the painful emotions, um, I'm also numbing the good emotions. And then I will go out and hustle for those positive emotions without realizing that the ways in which I have numbed the painful ones have also mm. numbed the good ones too. So yeah. Shout out to episodes 95 and 96 when Seth Haynes was on. Look at uh, you. <laughs> and just, I ser- I looked it up real quick. And just to, to clarify, when you talk about sobriety there, obviously that typically comes with primarily a, a substance use lens. Right. You're talking some about that, but then also about other ways that we, that we know. Yes, that's right. Yes. Okay. So it's not just substances and whether that's alcohol or food or coffee, but also behaviors and shopping and social media and lots of different ways that we choose to numb when we're uncomfortable in the present moment. You know, we grab our phone or we, you know, pour another drink or, you know, we've had a, a tough day. So we flop down on the couch and watch, you know, whatever show we watch for hours on end. And I'm not saying that these are bad in, you know, in incremental spaces. Like if, you know, you watch a show that's not necessarily a bad thing, but like when we are engaging in these practices in a way that numbs rather than shifting to like, gosh, why am I so tired after a hard day? Mm, Like what happened that made it so difficult? And how can I shift and maybe do something differently tomorrow or whatever, like that's that's more what I'm talking about with it. So yeah, yeah. So that that stillness is what allows us then um, to shift into that space of being able to actually see the sacred within um, and to see that divine spark. And I write quite a bit about like what that means, not only within the Christian tradition, but I talk a little bit about some other faith traditions or that kind of write this under write about this understanding of the divine spark within us. And, and and the reality is not only once we get to that place of stillness, do we see the, that divine spark and we recognize our inherent worth and that we are beloved as we are and that there is nothing that we did to earn that love um, and there's nothing that we could ever do to lose that love. Like it is prepackaged mm. within us. Um, we recognize these these beautiful gifts and parts of who we are. And in the C chapter, we also begin to wake up and recognize those shadows of who we are and the ways in which, you know, our efforts to help and serve may not have always been, um, they may not have always been the most helpful or healing. And in many ways, we may not realize that we actually have been hurting folks in our efforts to help. Um, So I talk quite a bit about that in this chapter as well. Um, But really what I want folks to hear and walk away with from this chapter in particular around C is recognizing that we are beloved, that we, again, that we were born with this divine spark within us, that we have inherent worth, 
that there is nothing we could do um, to be loved any more or less than we are in this moment. And yeah, I'll pause right there for the seat one. So yeah. 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 I think that's, that's fantastic. And then obviously the last two, uh, uh, and I know we're, we're coming up on Mm -hmm. time here to respect your time, but, um, the last two are shift and serve, uh, same questions for those. If you, yeah. Yeah. So again, as we recognize this divine spark within us that we did nothing to earn, um, or hustle for, there's really this natural shift that occurs. The first is showing compassion and love and kindness towards ourselves. Finally, recognizing as helpers that we are worth the love and care that we give to so many others, that we have this divine spark within us that is worth tending to and caring for to the best of our ability. And then the second shift related to that, that I talk about in the shift chapter is recognizing that if we have this divine spark within us, um, that means everyone around us has it as well, regardless of the infinite layers of intersectionality, um, regardless of experiences that we've had or have walked. Um, but if we have this within us, um, that means everybody around us has it. And so I have some practices within the shift chapter where I invite the reader to um, really hone in and recognize ways that we can be paying attention to and honoring that divine spark within others, um, to actually see it, pay attention yeah. to it, and seek it, again, both within ourselves and and within others. So how do we how do we actually go about doing that? And then from that place of shift, this is where our service comes in. And this is where service being this abundant service in recognizing the divine within us and others, this is where true helping and healing and wholeness is able to be extended to others from that place of groundedness, from that integration of our faith and our mental health and of being able to pay closer attention to our inner landscape in our landscape this is where we're able to serve others without strings attached because we now recognize that we are beloved and we don't need to serve with strings attached in this like give to take kind of way that a lot of helpers unfortunately do. Like we don't like to admit that it's gross to admit that. I mean, even just saying it out loud is it's so hard, but, but a lot of helpers, they have these unconscious motivations that are just bubbling beneath the surface in ways that they try to grab onto either power and control or affection and esteem or security and safety. And we do this by giving to others. Mm. Um, We're trying to give to others to be able to reclaim these various programs for happiness that I just mentioned. And so, so when we recognize that inherent worth within us, we're truly able to give to others from that place of belovedness and really be able to embody and live into that idea of loving our neighbors as ourselves, because we now have received and are able to internalize that love so that we can then offer that to others. And and even with that, you know, there are lots of practices again in this chapter that I outline. So is there, is there one favorite practice that you want to share? Maybe not favorite, but whichever one comes to mind there. Throughout the whole thing or within the serve chapter or? Yeah, within maybe the the shift and serve, either of those two. Yeah, well, within the serve one. So I I do elevate that there are two practices throughout the whole journey that I would love for everybody to participate in or engage in. And the first one is seeking mental health therapy. And I recognize as a social worker that you know, uh, that receiving mental health therapy has and can have a lot of layers of privilege tied to it and access Mm -hmm. and resources. And I'm very mindful of that. And at the same time, I know that it is so important for us to do that healing work as we go out and serve others, especially as helpers. And so the first practice I would elevate would be, um, seeking mental health care and therapy. Um, and, and I have a lot of resources. I know both you and I have resources on our websites of mm-hmm. how folks can find um, a therapist um, within their area. And then the second practice that I really elevate is centering prayer. 
that has been by far the most transformative for me. And yeah, and, and it would be one that I would, I would truly hope that our listeners would at least try out and that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, I, I write about too, like, it's not like you jump in and it's 20 minutes of like this pure bliss. It's like a wrestle of hard (laughs) and difficult, you know, it's hard to be still, it's hard to not, you know, hook on to every thought that flutters by when you're practicing centering prayer, but like, this is the practice. I mean, this is, you know, just like practicing an instrument, you've got to just kind of keep showing up to it. Yeah. So those would be the two. That's a really good question. But those would be the two throughout the book that I would say I would really hope the folks try out and consider. Yeah. Speaking of how's your um, how's your guitar playing going? Speaking of showing so again, up, again, yeah. it's a practice. Well, the guitar not so much, but piano. I am. I'm actually doing a little bit better with that one. <laughs> following go. through on that. So yeah. uh, I'm just <laughs> messing with you, obviously. I know. I know. Yeah. So so there's obviously tons more we could talk about, way more in yes. depth. And then part three, right, is kind of the so what? What does this look like moving forward? Things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll say, listeners. Go pre-order this book, or if you're listening to it after release, just go order it. Uh, you can uh, check out the the fantastic endorsements, even I think, including one from Robert Moore. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. P.S. Writing endorsements, super weird and awkward. I'm not. I'm not. I was. I'm Aww. like. I don't know what. I had to go look at other endorsements to see, like, how do people phrase these things? But Oh, anyway. you did. It's beautiful. Thank you for your endorsement, friend. It, it well, really meant you. a lot to me. I know one thing that particularly you love to ask people, uh, maybe I eagle-eared do. listeners <laughs> noticed that this became a standard question uh, when you came on board, but mm. we, uh, we like to ask people what their hope is for this work. So knowing mm. that you have spent so much time, and obviously I've, I've heard a lot of the backstory and I've been hearing about the, pr- the progression of this and kind of the the emotional weight of all of that, right? I mean, it's a huge, mm-hmm. long process over years yeah. and years and years. What is your yeah. hope knowing that in, uh, you know, a couple of months here or however long, uh, whenever this releases, right? Knowing that this launches out into the world and people get to like actually hold it and read it and, you know, like what is your, what is your hope for this? I love, thank you for asking that question, friend. I love that question. I love hearing it from others and it feels weighty and a privilege at the same time to think about it for this book. Mm. So I appreciate that. Um, I think my hope for this book would be um, that whoever picks it up and reads it, well, first of all, that it meets and comes across the path of whoever needs this book um, for the helper who is just tired and weary and feeling like they are doing everything they possibly can, but they are just still bumping up those edges of burnout. My my hope and my prayer would be that this book comes across their path, that they carve out the time to read it and to sit with it and to meditate on these practices that I've woven in, um, and that the reader walks away truly waking up to this divine spark within them and recognizing that they are beloved as they are and that they do not need to do anything to earn that love um, at all, that it is here. It is a gift. It is just woven and threaded into their DNA um, and that they are a gift um, just by their sheer presence among us. Um, Mm. That would be my hope for this book. Yeah. I love that. Listener, if mm-hmm. you want to connect with Dr. Holly Oxhandler, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at Holly Oxhandler. You can pre-order this book, The Soul of the Helper, Seven Stages to Seeing the Sacred Within Yourself so you can see it in others. Wherever you get your books, you can subscribe to her podcast, CXMH, if you've never listened. Uh, you can <laughs> connect with me at robert vorcom or on any social media at Robert. Robert Vore. Holly, thank you so much for uh, coming on as a guest, letting me flip it, flip it up here a little bit uh, mm. again for the first time in a couple of years. Uh, any closing thoughts for our listeners today? Oh, 
Well, I just so appreciate you, friend. I thank you so much for your great questions and for the time that we got to share talking about this book. I appreciate all of your help and support throughout this entire process of writing this book. And I I want to thank our listeners too for their support um, of the show and for their support through writing this book. I will say too, before I before we close real quick, for those who will pre-order it, there are going to be some pre-order goodies. And so we'll have some links to that in the show notes too. But I am just really, really grateful to be here and um, grateful we got to talk about this today. Thank you, friend. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com. 